0: So a hard truth that I've had to face in my uh, life has been uh, actually in the church community that's calling me up to be more Christ-like. It actually came from a sermon Ryan was doing and it was about um, inclusion, uh, being open to others of different walks of life um, in either minorities or you know sexual preferences and it was something he made a comment about being as being a white male not being able to really judge or know what they're going through and it kind of hit me of like it was during a time when maybe i felt attacked as a person for just who i am too and uh what was really great was being able to be in a community that accepts openness and wants to talk about it and wants to work through things with people so ryan was really open about grabbing coffee uh, and i just love in the church that we're in and the community we're in being able to talk to someone about it Uh, so ryan and i grabbed coffee and we were able to just discuss like new perspectives how how can i walk through that truth how can i be more christ-like in that and learn how to be closer to christ and closer to god in this moment of of struggle uh and really he just said you know we've never walked in those shoes so how do we know uh we only know our journey and our story and it's really changed my uh viewpoint on how I look at others of like, I've never walked in those shoes, I will never walk in those shoes, so all I can do is share the love of Christ with them, be there with them, and and just be love.
1: Hey, thank you, Kellen. Give Kellen a big hand. If you noticed, Kellen was playing the bass this morning, so uh, I remember that coffee. I mean, I let him have it. I let him have it. I mean... I, we cleared out the coffee house. I was yelling so much. I said, how dare you question anything I say. And then I received an offering, and we moved forward. That's what we do. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Have you ever had a moment like that, though, right, in your life where maybe you're confronted with an idea, uh, maybe you're confronted with a reality that, that goes a little bit against what you think to be true of yourself or of the world that you were raised in? Right? So it kind of contradicts a mental model or we could say maybe even our own like, personal truth or understanding of ourselves uh, or, or how the world works or what somebody else should do or think or what they should believe. And, and all of a sudden we're faced with some word, we're faced with some experience that is uncomfortable, right? And we go, what do we do with that? And that's kind of what Kellen was referring to. He said a hard truth. Like in a moment I heard something and it really challenged this perspective that I had taken as correct, right? Whatever that word means today in our post-modern, post-modern, post-postmodern context, right? There's a television show that as I was thinking about this message that came to mind, uh, Bar Rescue. Y'all ever watched Bar Rescue? Anybody watch Bar Rescue? It's kind of Trashy TV, I suppose, but uh, um, I had never seen it before, and I've got this like weird goal to like retire as a bar owner, because I don't know if you know this or not, but it's kind of the same thing, right? You're just trying to help people get through life, right? That's the that's the way I look at it. So that's kind of my retirement strategy. Uh, I mean, I haven't acted on it or anything, so just relax. But you know, um, and so, but this show, Bar Rescue, John Taffer's the host, and he's like goes around rescuing it. But these bars are like going to fail. It's imminent. Like, they're going to fail within a month. Like, they're running out of money, thousands and thousands of dollars in debt. And the first thing that happens in every one of these episodes, if you've ever seen it, is John Taffer comes in, and in a very unChrist-like way, screams and yells, and tells people they're failures, right? Uh, it's beautiful television, terrible life. Don't, don't ever do that in real life. But the, the point of it, right, is what he's doing in his own way is kind of bringing people to a hard truth, that if they're going to succeed, they have to accept that they failed. If they're going to succeed, they have to begin to see the world differently. And that's a hard truth. But that's kind of the idea that if I'm going to move forward, I have to first accept how I ended up here. And this idea of truth is kind of universal, right? Most cultures, all of our cultures embrace it. Religions embrace it, right? Philosophies, ways of life embrace it, right? Buddha said three things cannot be hidden. The sun, the moon, and the, say it out loud, truth, right? Gandhi said it this way, if you remain... uh, No, that was Jesus. You don't want that one. You want this one. If you are a minority of one, the truth is the truth. I say you don't want that one because you're filling in blanks, but it's all the same word, so I just gave away the next answer, right? Jesus put it this way, if you remain in my word, you will truly be my disciples. If you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, I just want to... This is a verse that has used in the past to get people to read their Bibles more. Okay, Jesus was not talking about the Bible that you're holding when he said, if you remain in my word, or more, probably more clearly, John is not talking about you reading the Bible, he's talking about remaining in the word of Jesus, the divine logos, the wisdom of God, right, what Jesus represented, right, that that brings freedom. And so how many of you would raise your hand up nice and high and say, I love the truth, I really do, I want the truth in my life. Anybody, Anybody? let's ask it this way, how many of you hate the truth? How many of you can't handle the truth? Right? It's like, I don't want it. I just go on the wall and protect the wall, for those of you that are my age and you know that movie, right? Right? Here's the thing about truth. We love the truth. Like, it's inside of us. We just, there's something, we, oh, I, I want the truth. It's kind of like generosity. I want to be a generous person until I actually have to do what it takes to be a generous person, right? And it's the same way with truth. We love truth until it contradicts our self-deceptions right? Every one of us in this room, everybody tuning in online, even those of you out enjoying the sun on the patio watching out there, we are all self-deceived. We all have areas in our lives that we've been handed, that we cling to, that seem right to us. They seem like because of our narrow life experience that this is the way it works. The worst of all deceptions is self-deception because we convince ourselves so true and it becomes part of our identity, And you all have a friend like this, okay? Uh, You personally aren't this person. I get it. But you have a friend who will seek out and search for that one person who will tell them what they want to hear, even though 20 other people will say, don't do it. They'll find the one person, right? So 20 people will look at this pair of glasses and say, don't buy it, Ryan. Do not buy them. They're ugly. They don't look good on you. But I'll find that one person. I don't care if they work for this store. They'll be like, those look like... Those look good on you. That's what Warby Parker said. Everybody else, don't get them, right? But but Mr. Parker, thank you, Jim. Right, we do that though, right? We, We want someone to confirm what we know to be true. We don't want to hear the 20 people that say, that's a bad idea, right? That's a bad investment. That's a bad use of time. I wouldn't talk to your spouse that way. I doubt it's going to last very long. But then you'll find that one person, oh, he deserves it. He right. She deserves it. And what happens is we'll listen to that one voice because we live in a cycle of self-deception. The cycle of self-deception looks like this. We desire to feel right. Anybody want to feel right? Come on. I'll wait. Y'all are liars, right? We want to be right. And more importantly, we want other people to know we're right. Let's be honest. That's really how it should be. We need other people to know we're right, right? I'm always telling my kids, like, why do you care if they think you're right or not? why does that matter? It's a really interesting question, why it matters so much to us that other people know we're, but that's a totally different other sermon, right? But we want to be right. We want that, like, that confirmation, so we go seek it out. We find somebody who will confirm that we're right, who will preach to the choir, so to speak. We get that confirmation. It feels so good, so we long for it some more, right? We long for it some more, uh, the Arbinger Institute put out a book called "Leadership and Self Deception," and in it they write this: They say self deception is like this: It blinds us to the true causes of problems, and once we're blind, all the solutions we can think of will actually make matters worse, because all of our solutions are grounded in self deception. It's like Bar Rescue, these bar owners are at the end, so far into their own failure of running a business, so far into their own failure of, of being a leader and how to manage staff, right, that every solution they come up with is so faulty because it's grounded in this idea that I'm actually doing okay. I'm losing $10,000 a month, but hey, I got, I got 30 days left in the bank, what's the big deal? The problem, right? And we all face this in our lives at some level. And so there's some wisdom that we want to pull out of our campfire story today. And I want to look at this story. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've read it. It's a story of Esther. Uh, Esther is a book that's found in what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. It's about 10 chapters long. I would encourage everybody to read the story of Esther this week. It'll take you maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes to read. And Because I'm going to go through it real quickly, and I want to focus on one part of the story that really speaks to this idea of self-deception and what we all need in our lives. But if you're not familiar, this, this book of Esther came to us probably in the fourth century B.C., right? So this is post, after the the Jewish people have been sent to exile, the Babylonians have come to power, the Babylonians have gone out of power, the Persians are in power, and this little story of Esther comes into existence, and its ultimate purpose, right, the ultimate purpose of this book is a justification for, first of all, the holiday of Purim, which is part of the Jewish calendar, it explains the origin of Purim, and it also is meant to help Jewish people living in the diaspora, they're not living in Jerusalem, how do I maintain my identity? how should I live as a Jew in a foreign land, right? And so this story would have been used over and over again for that. All right, so here's how the story goes, okay? Esther is in exile. Her cousin Mordecai is in exile as well. Esther's parents die. She's an orphan. Mordecai, her cousin, cares for her, raises her, right? Starts off with this very fanciful story about the Persian king, Ahasuerus. And the king throws a party. And you gotta understand that this is a This is like hyperbole. The whole story is grounded in buffoonery, okay? There's a lot of comedy in this story. We should take it that way. And so the king throws a six-month-long party. Come on now, right? You want to be invited to that party, right? Like, who would have time to go to a six-month-long party that finishes with a seven-day-long, like, Better than better the first six months party, right? All the officials, everybody who runs the place, right? This is what the writer wants the Jewish people to know. Like, this is how foolish the Persians are. They're so stupid. Like, that's what he's saying, and as, or she's saying as they write this. Like, they're crazy. So they have this big party. And the king, as the culmination of the party, wants to bring out his queen, who he thinks is just gorgeous, wearing the royal crown, to bring her out and parade her around. And Vashti, the queen's like, I ain't doing that. No way. I'm the queen of Persia. I'm not coming around flaunting for you. And so now all the officials go into a tizzy because they don't know what to do with this independent woman. They freak out. And the king doesn't know what to do. So he calls in all his officials. And what should we do? Because what happens if all the women folk of Persia hear about what the queen did? Then the men are not going to know what to do with ourselves. This is the story, right? I don't know if you've read it, but this is the story. And so they're all freaking out. And so all these men are like, "Well, here's what you got to do, king. Like, once this all gets out, all our women are going to get out of control. So we need to squash this. So you got to get rid of the queen." And that's what he does. He's like, "Okay, get rid of the queen." And so then the time comes and he's like, "Well, I need a new queen. So what do we do?" He <laughs> says, so "Let's let's throw a big big pageant. Let's have a big pageant. Let's bring all the virgins." I mean, this is the story that's in there, okay? I don't want to sugarcoat it for you. And they're all going to try out for the king. Now you've had this sanitized version, but try out for the king. They were all sent in for a night with the king, the harem, one after the other, trying out who would be the queen. They were allowed to take one thing with them. That's what it says in the text, the night that they spend with the king. I don't know if you notice they weren't playing checkers. <laughs> this problematic literature, okay? comes from a different period. But again, this is all part of it. so. So there's this big contest that maybe in the sanitized version is a beauty contest, but it's far more than a beauty contest. So one night after another, after another, after another, after another. Well, Esther, as this beautiful Jewish woman, she ends up in the harem voluntarily. It's her night. What should I take? She asks the attendants. The attendants, she just listens to whatever. the I don't know what. They don't say what she took. But whatever she took worked because she won. She becomes queen. So now she's queen. Now, in the middle of all of this, what's going on behind the scenes is Mordecai and second in command, a guy named Haman, they start, like, they start to have some tension. Haman finds out about a plot, or excuse me, Mordecai finds out about a plot to kill the king, thwarts it. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Haman is elevated. Mordecai won't bow down to Haman because his, his law won't allow him to bow down to people, and plus he's part of a heritage that is like the mortal enemy of the Jews. This is all in there. And then one night, the king can't sleep. And the king can't sleep, and the king wakes up, and he starts reading in the annals, and he finds that there's this guy, Mordecai, who rescued him, and he didn't even know about it. Now, Haman earlier had gotten so angry at Mordecai, he didn't know what to do, so what he did was he built this huge post outside of his house, and his intention was to hang Mordecai on it. That's what his plan was. That very day he did that. So that night the king can't sleep. The king calls in Haman and says, Haman, what do we do? Like, what should I do to honor a person? How should the king of Persia honor a person? Now Haman, filled with pride and hubris, says, well, he's got to be talking about me. It's got to be me. So here's what you should do. You should get some of your clothes that you've worn, and you should put them on this person, and you should get a horse that you've ridden, and you should put, and then somebody, a high official, should walk this person through the town yelling, this is what the king does to a person they want to honor. And the king says, you're right, Haman, let's do this. Go get Mordecai. <laughs> Haman, what are you doing the rest of the night? I'm going to need you to walk Mordecai around on my horse wearing my clothes, telling everybody how amazing he is, <laughs> right? Right? So, this is what happens. So, Haman goes and does that. Now, dun dun, the big part of the story is this. Because Haman hates Mordecai, he tricks the king into issuing a decree that would allow them to kill all of the Jews. Not just Mordecai, but all of them. He's so angry. So, this decree gets signed. He's going to give 10,000 pieces of silver, 10,000 pieces of gold. He's going to put it in the treasury. Just let me kill all the Jews. And the king is like, okay, doesn't realize he's married to a Jew. Right? Again, this is the buffoonery that they want you to understand in the story. These are the same men who were like, What do we do when our women don't listen to us? Right? <laughs> Maybe listen to them. Still, feels like a better option to me, right? So now there's this decree to kill all the Jews. Haman is trying to get rid of Mordecai. Mordecai's being paraded around. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, What do we do? So Mordecai gets word to Esther. Esther receives the word. She then puts her life in danger, goes in, confronts the king, invites Haman and the king to a banquet, sets him up, invites him to another banquet. In that banquet, the the king is like, what do you want, Esther? Anything up to half the kingdom, and it's yours. And she says, I just want my life. That's all I want. Is that so much to ask? He says, what are you talking about? He says, well, there's been a decree. Haman's trying to kill me. And Haman's there at the meal, by the way. Awkward. That's, That's an awkward party moment, Right? Haman's starting to slink away. So now the king doesn't know what to do because he's like, this is crazy. So he leaves, comes back. Haman's begging for his life. He thinks that Haman is attacking Esther, raping her. So guess what happens? You know it. Haman goes and has hung on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. And then the Jews are given the right to defend themselves for the one day in which they were meant for slaughter. And then Queen Esther feels like she's on a roll. So she's like, hey, king, can we just have a second day? It'd be good if we just kill more people defend ourselves, right? So, there's one day that she's supposed, then she's a little bloodthirsty. She's like, yeah, maybe a second day. It's kind of fun being in power, right? So, that's what happens. And then you have this established holiday of Purim, where you celebrate God's providence, celebrate the day in which they were rescued, and it's a reminder of God always being present. That's the story of Esther. Now, the text that I want to look at from the story of Esther is the moment where Esther starts to find out about this decree that has come, all right? Are you with me? That's not very convincing. Yeah. Okay, so Esther chapter 4, all right? So Mordecai has found out about this, this, this document that's now floating around and that all the Jews are going to be destroyed on one day, one day, Genocide is going to take place. Now, here's what it says. It says, when Mordecai learned all that was happening, he tore his garments, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went through the city crying out loudly and bitterly till he came before the royal gate, which no one clothed in sackcloth might enter. I love this little bit of the story because, boy, the palace never likes bad news. Right? There's a reason why. It's a protected space. Let's not bring in the bad stuff. So like Mordecai's not allowed to go into the gate in, 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 in where the way he's dressed because it's a bummer, right? It's a very interesting space of privilege, right? And we'll get to that. So he's like going around, he's wearing the traditional signs of mourning, he's lamenting, he's yelling, right? And it says, likewise, in each of the provinces of Persia, where the king's decree and law had reached, the Jews went into deep mourning with fasting and weeping and lament most of them laying on sackcloth and ashes. Now, here's what's fascinating. Mordecai and the Jews who heard heard of this decree, they responded very appropriately to the truth, right? They said, this isn't good. In one day, all these people are going to have the right to kill us, and we don't have the right to defend ourselves, right? So their response was perfectly appropriate. But now you go back to Esther, who's tucked away in the palace, right? Doesn't really know what's going on. It says that Esther's maids and the eunuchs, they came and told her, hey, like, Mordecai's out there acting the fool. You got to stop this. What, like, and she doesn't know what's going on, so it says she's overwhelmed with anguish. The queen sent garments for Mordecai to put on so that he might take off his sackcloth. Isn't that such a good, like, isn't that such a good response? Stop it. There's nothing wrong just put these on. Pretend like nothing. What, what is wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Put them on. But he refused to do it. I'm not putting these on. Do you know what's going on? So he refuses. So, hey, so, so Esther then summons Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had placed at her service, right? And she commanded him, go find out what's going on with Mordecai? Why is he doing this and the reason for it? Notice that's not her first response. Her first response is to just quiet him, silence the truth. What, I don't know what's going on. Why? Privilege. Because privilege insulates us from truth. And privilege had insulated the whole palace from reality. It was just this little world that was not based in anything that was actually happening. And that same was very true for Esther a Jew living in the palace. Her people are being threatened with genocide, and she has kept herself completely outside of reality. The truth is, if Esther wanted to know what was happening in the outside world, she would have known. But why should she? Life is good in the palace, except being a part of a harem and basically a sex slave to the king. But other than that, right? Like, she's like, I got all the food I want. I've got servants. Why does it matter? Text says, so Hatak went out to Mordecai in the public square in front of the royal gate, and Mordecai recounted all that had happened to him, told everything, told the exact amount of silver that Haman had promised to pay to the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. And he also gave a copy of the written decree for their destruction that had been promulgated in Susa to show and explain to Esther, you gotta take this to Esther. This is what's going on. And so Mordecai instructs this servant of the king who's been put under Esther's care to go. And you need to tell Esther, she's gotta go to the king, plead and intercede with him on behalf of her people. Her people. Now what's fascinating about this moment, I don't want us to miss it, is that Mordecai did not offer what was going on until Esther asked, right? She sends clothes. He says, I don't want your stupid clothes. Get them out of here. But nobody thought to ask him. So he sends back the clothes. Then she comes back out and says, what's going on? Hey, Tad, go find out what's happening. And it wasn't until she asked for the truth that Mordecai gave it. Mordecai didn't come up with accusations and calling her a loser, telling her she didn't love her people. What's wrong with you? Everything I did for you, I raised you since you were this little. None of that. He just, when she asks, I'll tell. So Esther gets word of it, and this is what he, she sends back. She says, listen, all the servants of the king and the people of his provinces know that any man or woman who goes to the king in the inner court without being summoned is subject to that same law, death, death. Only if the king extends the golden scepter will such a person live. Now, as for me, I've not been summoned to the king for 30 days. And so when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he had this reply brought to her. This is the moment, right? She's like, what am I going to do? I can't do anything about it. I'll die when I do that. I'm not going to be of any help. He says this hard truth. Don't imagine that you are safe in the king's palace. You alone of all the Jews, don't imagine it. Even if you remain silent, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another source, but you and your father's house will perish. Remember her, she was an orphan, so this is it. What he's saying is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And then he says, who knows, perhaps it was for a time, just like this, this moment that you've become queen. See, Mordecai speaks a difficult but hope-filled truth into Esther's speaks it into her life, speaks it into her point of self-deception. I'll be okay. I'm the queen. I'll be fine. This is my safe space. And the question becomes, like, how is she going to take that? Would the privilege of living in the palace blind her? Would she forget her heritage? Would she forget that she's part of this people of God? Would her ears be closed to the truth? Would her eyes be closed to seeing it? Would she forget that Mordecai loved her, that Mordecai had raised her as a child, and would she just consider him a fool? Would he become an enemy because of his expectation of her in the position that she was in? So Esther sends back this response to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who were in Susa and fast on my behalf, all of you. Don't eat or drink night or day for three days, and my maids will also fast in the same way, thus prepared. I will go to the king contrary to the law, and if I perish, I perish." Such a beautiful moment, such a beautiful story, a beautiful response to a hard truth. See, Esther lived out this beautiful proverb, right? Esther trusted the wound of a friend over kisses of an enemy. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6 says that wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. See, the palace and privilege just, that's just kiss after kiss after kiss after kiss. Oh, you're so good, Esther. You're so good. Oh, life is so good. It's wonderful. Kiss, 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 kiss. All these people that are paying for their life to tell her how amazing she is, surrounded with privilege. Just But her friend, Mordecai, brings this word that's hard to hear. I love the story goes on. It says that Mordecai did exactly, right? Went away, did exactly as the queen had commanded. Like Mordecai didn't abandon Esther. Mordecai wasn't like, this is your problem to solve. Let me know how it goes. No, he was with her. He walked with her through it. So he went and did that exact. He's got everybody. All right, we're all in this together. Our hope is going to be in what God can do through this. Now, fascinatingly enough, in the book of Esther, the word God, the name of God, is not mentioned one time. So only book that we have in the entire Christian Bible that the word God is not mentioned. Maybe implied, but not mentioned at all. And so for us, like don't miss this. Like Mordecai the truth teller, what does he do? He brings Esther to a crossroads in her life. What will I choose? My self-deception, my privilege, what will it be? And that's what truth tellers do. They bring us to a crossroads of self-deception and self-examination. They bring us to a point where we're forced to make a choice. Will I examine what I hold to be truth? Will I examine what I hold to be my point of view as the way everybody should live? Will I hold that or will I enter into a space of self-examine? Will I enter into the hard work of maybe deconstructing a part of my life, the privilege that I think I can hold? Like Esther, what what, what is she going to do in that crossroads in that moment? And obviously... The point of the story is to bring us to becoming better people. So she chooses self-examine. She changes her tune. She says, all right, I'm in. Let's do it. So what about you and me tomorrow? What about in our everyday normal lives when we wake up on Monday, we go to work, we take the kids to school, we go out into the garden, we live our retired life, whatever it might be, wherever your everyday normal life is, what happens, what about us when we're faced with truth that doesn't make us feel warm and fuzzy? that everything inside of us reacts kind of viscerally towards. I don't want to hear that. What do we do? Well, I think we ask ourselves some questions. First question we should ask is, does the truth teller have a track record of love in my life? Mordecai had a track record of love. Right, so this person who maybe is confronting me or talking with me or, or in some way, shape, or form has brought a truth into my life, is there a track record of love or is it a track record of control? Is it a track record of manipulation? Second question we can bring to that moment, is this truth teller acting selflessly or selfishly? Like, are they calling me to do something that is solely for their benefit so that I could live the way they want me to live or so that I just do what they want me to do? Or are they actually calling me to a selfless act? Are they calling me to what I understand to be the love of Jesus in this world, right? Are they calling out in me something that is destructive, that's contrary to the law of love? Are they pointing me towards that? Or are they pointing me towards acting selfishly for me or for them? Mordecai's calling Esther to do something that was very selfless. And I think the next question is probably one of the most powerful ones to know how should we take this truth is, will the truth teller walk with me through self-examination and change? Or is it just, this is what it is? Will they walk with me? See, Mordecai was willing to walk with Esther. I, you know, you. this might surprise you. What time is it? I can tell you this. Um, I'll get notes sometimes. <laughs> and I got a note a couple weeks ago, and I think I might have mentioned this at one point. And, and it was like, it was just in an envelope. I had my name on it and address and everything. It was here in the office. I opened it up, and it was this, like, call to repentance. Somebody was, like, wanting me to repent. And uh, I don't remember exactly what it said. So I knew, I, as soon as I opened it up, I was like, oh, I broke my rule. There was no return address, like... I shouldn't have done it, you know? So it was like this, like, you need to repent, something about hell and me, I don't know, it was all in there. And it may as well have been like, somebody should have like snipped out letters from magazines and like <laughs> pasted it in, it was like that kind of thing, right? And like, you know, you get that, and I've been in this business now for, you know, 25 years, and that's bound to happen, so I can like dismiss it, but early on, you get that, oh my gosh, it's like, what am I going to do? But it's this person telling me I need to repent, blah, 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 And what I realized is, like, this person isn't walking with me through anything. Like, this isn't truth. This isn't, oh, there's some, like, God's using this to get my attention. That's my other favorite one, too. God told me to tell you that always, I love that one, by the way. I'm like, I'll wait till God to tell me that myself, you know. (laughs) Unless you're telling me how good-looking I am, then I'll receive that. But otherwise, why don't you just go keep it to yourself is kind of how I feel. I'm like, what's wrong with my life that God can't just talk to me, you know? Been telling me my whole life the Catholic church is bad because they pray to saints and now God needs you to talk to me? Like, this doesn't make any sense. I digress. Okay. By the way, that's not a statement against Catholics. It's a statement against the hypocrisy within non-Catholicism that thinks, okay, at, at any rate. So, that'll get me in trouble. Right? But th- this is the truth. Like, that person's not going to walk with me. They have no track record of, of love for me. This isn't a person who has known me, who's walked. Like, why am I not going to have any two cents to that? Now, if you're the truth teller in the room, and I know some of you have been like, oh, this is a great message because I got some people I need to tell the truth to. Come on. Like, I've been waiting for this, so now I can be a truth teller because we should be truth tellers, right? But here, okay, like, now it's like, because nobody sees themselves as needing to hear the truth. I just got to figure out how to say the truth in love. That's my favorite one, by the way. Just do it in love, okay? I was like, we have a different definition of love. Okay, but here's the deal. So, if you feel like you're in someone's life, And there's something that you would say, oh, man, this hurts my heart for them. There's a missed opportunity here. There's something that's causing pain, right? If you think you have a truth for someone you love, can I give you the best advice that you'll ever receive? Wait for the question. Wait for the question. Metaphorically speaking, put on your sackcloth and ashes, be present in a person's life, but wait for the question. Here's what happens with people of faith. We don't wait for the question. We don't wait for it. I spend my whole life and we just don't wait for it. We don't wait for people to be hungry. We don't wait for people to wonder what's different about our lives. We don't wait for people to know how could you possibly love so much? That person treated you so badly. How could you? We just want to tell people how to behave rather than putting on our own sackcloth and ashes, weeping and mourning, and then when the question comes, be ready to give a loving answer. And when we don't wait, we become a problem for the Spirit of God. You know what I'm saying? what I want for us. But we become a problem with God. See, we were told, like I was told, I can't say we, I don't know. Some of us were told you got to go share your faith. People are going to go burn in hell forever and ever. You got to go share your faith, right? They need to hear the good news. We got to start with the bad news kind of thing. Nobody's ever asked, by the way, but we need to go do this thing, right? And then I was told this. Maybe you were told this too. When you get nervous and you don't want to say something, that's the spirit. That's the devil. That's the devil trying to stop what God wants to do in your life. Can I tell you something? It's not the devil telling you to shut your mouth. It's God. It's true. It's like God saying, "They're not ready. Shut up. If you're a kid, we don't say that language, by the way. Only God. <laughs> like th- like if I'm following Jesus and I have a check in my heart and I feel bad about, like feel like this, like, I don't think it's the devil, whatever you mean by that. I think it's the God that I'm trying to live out, saying, "Hey, they're not ready for that. They're not ready. It's not you being nervous. It's not you not wanting to be a good follower of Jesus. It's not you wanting to invite somebody to church. It's not you wanting to see them do well. It's God saying, I'm working. Stop. Please stop. (laughs) Stop. Stop. So I want to give you freedom to stop, to trust that guidance by the Spirit. Because as a peacemaker, we should be listening for the Spirit of God in our own lives, right? And, and I actually believe that 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 most of the time, like when people are ready to hear about what God is doing in your life, not what you think God should be doing in their life, that's a totally different thing. It, it, it's like, it's just smooth. It's an enjoyable conversation. It's, it, it's, it's like a light being turned on with a dimmer switch. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? We just like, bing! You know, ah, just that dimmer switch, right? And so we should be listening to the Spirit of God, honoring that that is a voice of truth in our lives, examining it to the law of love. Paul said in Romans 8, 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, who are children of God? Peacemakers, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peacemakers, we listen to the voice of the Spirit. And that's not an audible voice all the time. That's oftentimes just like our, our bodies physically responding to a, a God saying, like, stop, stop. You know, like, if you, if you talk to anybody who talks about fear, right, your body has a physical response to fear, <laughs> and then a lot of times people will tell you, oh, just press on. Like, why? <laughs> Think about that. Why would I do that? That's like my body is in tune with the spirit of the living God telling me, don't get on the roller coaster. Don't go down that alley. Oh, it's just irrational fear. Like, no, it's not, right? There is this truth to like, we have to learn to embrace our physical responses to what God is doing as well and how truth sets in, right? And what's beautiful about this is if we'll let people speak truth into our lives, if we'll just be open to it, we don't have to accept everything, we don't have to let everything change us or transform us, but if we will live this open-hearted life to the potential that maybe we don't have it all, right, that, that maybe I need input from God and from others in my life, like, truth itself offers this beautiful path, and it's a path to becoming the best version of you. That's what's beautiful about truth. It just, puts, it, it just gives me this path to become the best version of myself. And here's the Bible word for this process of becoming the best version of yourself. You know what the Bible word is? Sanctification. Now, maybe you thought sanctification was this idea of you becoming perfect and never sinning and following all the moral rules. I don't think that's the point of sanctification. I think the point of sanctification is to bring us to be what? Set apart. The very word means to be set apart to be used for a special purpose. See, Mordecai spoke the truth to Esther, right? And what? It set Esther in a space of special purpose. Her best version of herself, to be used to offer herself for others. Boy, where have I heard that before? Offering yourself for other people. There was somebody who lived a long time ago, gave their life for others. I don't know. It'll come to me one of these days. That's the, that, like, to be set apart for this beautiful work of peacemaking. That's what sanctification is. I just, can we just take a breath? Like, you're gonna mess up. You're gonna sin. Like, there's, that's just a reality of the human condition, right? Like, so just relax about that for a second and recognize to be set apart is not to be perfect, but it's to say, my life has been set apart to be a sustaining reality of love in a world that the normalcy will fight against that. And so this idea of what happens with Esther, I believe the wisdom and the the, the inspiration of the text is that in faith, I can believe that about me and you when we live as peacemakers. The peacemakers have made a decision to follow the truth of Jesus in faith. What do we believe in faith? We believe that forgiveness, mercy, inclusion, nonviolent opposition to oppression, And injustice, care for the poor and marginalized, all those things that Jesus stood for, that that is what holds the world together. That's the little bit of leaven that's needed. That's the little bit of yeast that keeps it all together. And that's the call that I've tried to say, this is what I'm going to follow. This is what I'm going to live in faith. And this is what will heal and sustain. See, that's the way, the truth, and the life that leads to the experience of God in this world. So when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me, I don't believe that's about this like prayer that you pray, confession, and then you're the ones that get to go to heaven. No, I think what Jesus is saying here is, if you want to, because he, he's speaking to The idea is just to be speaking to Jewish people who think that God is found in this temple, in this one little spot, and if I follow all the religious rules, then that's where I'll experience God. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You want to experience God, live this life patterned after me, and you will experience the divine in this world. It's never been about religions or rituals. Those things can be useful and helpful, but it's about loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. That's what Jesus said. You want to experience the divine, love yourself, first of all which the church has done a terrible job of teaching that oftentimes, and then you love other people the way you love yourself. And that's how you love God. That's how you love, that's the beauty of it all. So as we wrap up today, what is it that God's inviting you into? In this big idea of truth and truth tellers and being one who receives the truth, maybe you need to give permission to someone to speak truth into your life. We should all have one or two people in our lives that we know love us so much that we can hear whatever it is that we need to hear. And they'll give it to us to receive and consider, and they'll love us regardless of how we receive it and consider it. So maybe you just need to have a conversation with a couple people and say, hey, you're my my people. You're my person. I need people in my life who will expose my blind spots. I want to be a person of self-examination. Now, that might be weird to say to somebody who's not sitting here right now, (laughs) Will you be my person of (laughs) self-examination? I gotta go, right? (laughs) But how do you have those people in your life? Maybe you need to thank somebody for loving you enough to be a truth teller in your life. Maybe they've been somebody who's just walked with you for so long. Maybe, maybe the Spirit of God is speaking to you and saying, you need to open your heart to the truth from people who love you. Because there's been some wound in your life that has closed off your heart to this idea that you might not be perfect. There's a wound in your life that when someone speaks a truth to you, you take it personally and it becomes part of your identity as opposed to an opportunity to become your best self. And so the Spirit of God says, let me heal that wound. Why don't you confess that wound to me and let me work in your heart and your life and we'll go on this journey together. That's the beauty of the living Christ. So as we wrap up, we're, we're going to sing this song. I'm going to invite you to fill out that connect card. Any next steps you want to just say, this is, what, this is the journey I want to go on this week, this month with this idea. You can finish filling out your offering envelope and we'll receive the offering and the connect cards here in just a couple of minutes. And As you're doing that, this song that they're going to play is, is an interesting song. It's called Reckless Love. And there's some lyrics in this song that talk about, there's no shadows. That God doesn't light up to pursue us with love. And that's the truth, the reality. The truth brings light into a darkness. And here's what I know and I I think is accurate is sometimes the most difficult truth to believe is, is the very foundation of what allows us to hear other truth. And that is this, that you and I are perfectly loved by God. The grace is so amazing and so powerful and so beautiful that it doesn't require a prayer to be prayed. It doesn't require a life to be lived. It doesn't require decisions to be made. It doesn't require anything. It's just there. It just is. Because God is. <laughs> and it's a great mystery. And that foundation of knowing that you are loved, knowing that you have a place in the universe, knowing that that love is not based on any condition, it's not based on any belief or religion, knowing that that love is not based on any act of performance, that sets us on sure footing for somebody to come and say, hey, Ryan, i got to talk to you. The way you said that. Hey, Ryan, i got to talk to you. I don't think you really are thinking about how that is unloving to that person. So I don't have to take that as an attack on myself because I know that I'm safe and secure and loved by God. Regardless of those things. So maybe that's the truth that some of us need to hear today, is that there is this reckless love that pursues us, that gives us the firm foundation so that when the winds blow and the storms rage, all of that, we don't sink. We don't respond viscerally. We just receive it. That's the beauty of Jesus. And if you haven't ever met that Jesus. That's my Jesus. That's what I think Jesus came to show us all. And that's why I think our church is super important. So let's just take a few moments and breathe a little bit. Just let God speak to your heart this morning, and then we'll have a blessing to get us out of here. Just close your eyes with me for a moment. Sometimes there are really no words that can adequately convey the depth of love. True, authentic, divine love. Maybe just sit in silence for just a few seconds and see it as the purest moment of our lives where we're just loved. Loved in this moment. Just be loved. This week. This week, may love bless you and keep you in the hope of truth. And while truth at times may sting, may our hearts be open to the healing and freedom that it will bring. And just as medicine can be difficult to swallow but provides a path to physical health and strength, may we learn to accept that truth in the same way provides a path to spiritual health and spiritual strength. And may the Spirit of God lead you to a truth teller who has loved you and cared for you. A truth teller who will walk with you into the best version of yourself so that you might find yourself set apart wholly for the peacemaking work of God in this world. And may all of us Every person who hears the sound of my voice, may every one of us know by faith that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. May we live under the law of love and the law of love only. And may that transform us and our world in Jesus' name. Have an amazing week, everyone.